Terabody Nuns Precepts, Christian Sister Bowser Terabody Nuns Precepts, mother of eight children, uh, teaches with Pasta in the United States, Canada, Europe, and Australia. Uh, she's a psychology and religious studies professor at Minnesota State University in Mankato, and uh, she offers spiritual guidance and writes lectures on spirituality. You also have a, a website of your own, don't you? www.recum.org. And if you want to get on her email list, you can speak to her afterwards, or you can speak to me, and I'll get you an email address and make sure that you can get emails from her as well. So thank you so much for being here. appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, you left out something very important, that I live with my four cats right now. <laughs> Um, the people who know me know they're important. That was not your bio, so. <laughs> um, usually when I speak here, um, there's, there's some of you, of course, have heard me before. Um, you know that I usually speak in a, I put the teachings in an interfaith perspective usually because the relationships among the different traditions is very important to me. Tonight's talk is a little bit different. Oh, it still has an interfaith perspective, but rather than talking about one of the teachings like I usually do, um, I'm giving a talk that I did at one of the retreats that I read last year. I had learned that an awful lot of people are confused about the different types of meditation, and they don't know the difference between, well, what's the difference between this and this and that and that and the such. So I thought I would do a clarifying talk explaining major types of meditation and what the aims and goals of each are and some examples of each of them um, to sort all of that out so that people are clear about what, um, what forms there are. Um, I doubt that people in this room have some of the confusion that ordinary people out in the world would have. But there are some similarities between meditation and some other experiences that people sometimes confuse with it. And um, I'm going to say just a few words about that so that if you have anybody ask you, you can have a pretty quick answer. Um, one is, uh, some people say, well, isn't it just self-hypnosis when you're, when you're meditating? And you know better, but the, the best answer to give to people about that is that when you're hypnotized, you're giving the hypnotist the power to define reality for you. And when you concentrate deeply on his or her voice, that becomes the only reality for you. So what they tell you is real becomes real for you. Like they say your hand is so light it's floating up to the ceiling. It will do that. This is if you can get concentrated enough on the hypnotist's voice to have it become your sole reality. Some people can't, and then they can't be hypnotized. Um, and of course, obviously, that's not what we're doing. We're exploring reality rather than putting a definition on reality. So I think that's the quickest, quick answer you could give people who ask if it is self-hypnosis. Some people also think that affirmations, you know, like when you tell yourself every day and every way I'm getting better and better. <laughs> which of course is an obvious falsehood and it's rather difficult to get your mind to believe obvious falsehoods. Um, but many people do practice affirmations and, and find it useful um, for them. And again, that's, that's 
putting closure on how things are, which is what we're not doing. So again, it's it's different, although you, you concentrate again on the words that you're saying to try to make them real for you, but um, it's again different from the kind of exploration of reality that we're doing. Those are the two major things that, that people ask, aren't, aren't they the same thing? Um, and of course the people who ask, isn't it dangerous? You all have your answer for that. Of course it isn't dangerous, it's helpful. Um, I'm going to make, now to get to some different types of meditation, an early distinction I'm going to make is between what we can call discursive practices and non-discursive practices, which pure meditation is. It's not discursive. Discursive means that you're either thinking or um, following some track with, with your practice. The most common forms of discursive practice are to read something inspirational and think about it. Now this does help concentrate your mind some when you concentrate on just thinking about a particular thing, like the past inspirational passage. People use different scriptures in different traditions or something else inspirational and think about it. But this can only get you to very low levels of depth because to get really deep, you get beyond thought in your practice. So for depth of meditation, you want to do non-discursive forms of practice, practice that don't involve thinking or the deliberate creation of images. Now, these practices have their usefulness to the thinking and the creation of images. And I'm, I'm not knocking them. I'm just saying that they take you only so far. And that's about all I want to say about discursive practices, and I want to get to non-discursive practices. There are two time-honored and time-proven ways to do non-discursive practices. Um, we're grateful to Hindu yoga for one of them, for concentrative forms of practice, which um, probably as early as 3,000 years BCE, there were some forms of this being done in India um, by these yogis. yogis. Um, it got sort of formalized um, around 3,400 before the Common Era um, and um, fell into schools of philosophy called the Sankhya Yoga philosophy. So. That is concentrative practice, which I'm going to talk about in a, in a minute in more depth. The second form of practice is mindfulness or awareness or insight practice, which is our major practice. And to this, of course, we're indebted to the Buddhist tradition primarily. And um, we all know that it started about five, six hundred years before the Common Era in the time of the Buddha. Um, in the mid-20th century, when the Beatles found the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, um, he knew that he had a cash cow because he had the Beatles behind them. And he said that he was going to develop a form of meditation that Westerners could do. I talk about condescending, you know, like we don't have either the smarts or the willingness to practice to do traditional forms of meditation. So he developed this sort of loose form of you, you're really going 
back and forth in an unstructured way between concentrative and awareness practice. And it's got some real problems. We're going to talk about that later. But first, I'm going to start with the oldest traditional, long-standing, time-proven form, which is concentrative. Um, this does appear in the Buddhist tradition, of course. If you have ever practiced loving-kindness practice, which is common, or metta practice, which is common in our tradition, that's a form of concentrative practice. In some schools of Buddhism, um, they do sacred word or mantra practice. They might use the name of the Buddha or some other single word that they concentrate on. Of course, we're concentrating on a phrase when we do loving-kindness practice. The idea in concentrative practice is that you choose an object of practice and try to keep your attention on it. And everything except that chosen object of practice is a distraction. And as soon as your attention strays from that chosen object and you realize that it's strayed, you're to bring it back immediately to your chosen object. Um, there are various chosen objects we can use. Um, you can use an object that is an attribute that you want to develop. Uh, that's what the loving-kindness practice or its related practices of compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity are about. You want to develop this particular beautiful mind state of having a, a gentle, loving heart toward yourself and other beings. And so you do the practice because it fills your mind with that kind of an attitude and tends to drive out everything that's incompatible with it. Um, the proper method of going about this is that you use the words or the phrases as an anchor to keep you on your object, but you're also supposed to be mainly paying attention to the meaning of the words that you say and the person that you're blessing when you call down these blessings. So you'll really have all three of these things in your attention. The words are not just to be empty rattling. They're to be with the meaning of what they're saying, each of the blessings that you're calling down. And when we're with it in this way, we gradually build the strength of that attitude of loving, caring in our mind, which, as I say, drives out what's incompatible. Um, sometimes the chosen object can be a visual object. People will use a candle flame. Uh, or an in, inner image, uh, common ones that are used are a diamond in the location of what's called the third eye for, for wisdom, or a rose in the heart, which is another idea supposed to be developing love. Because so you can use a, a real or imagined image. Perhaps the most common one that people are aware of is called mantra meditation, where you usually use a single word that you repeat over and over and over again. This is the traditional way of doing it in Hindu yoga. Um, the, the teacher will give you a mantra or sacred word. Um, if it's done within a long-standing tradition, what they do is they see what they see in you of the divine and give you a word that draws out or develops that attitude within you. Although sometimes they will give a temporary mantra to a person if they see that a particular trait needs to be developed or if they need a mantra that will make them see something about themselves um, that need to be seen. 
Um, this was my major practice before I found mindfulness practice. And I put about a dozen years of pretty in intensive practice into Hindu yoga. And one of the men initiated at the time that I was initiated uh, started complaining almost immediately that he must have gotten a really rotten mantra because he was angry all the time ever since he got it. Well, word got back to the teacher, and the teacher said, now that you realize what an angry person you are, I will give you another mantra. So it was designed to draw out his awareness of that particular attribute. Um, there are mantras that can be used to develop various paranormal powers. Um, they encourage people not to go for those. They're much better off doing a mantra that is purely spiritual practice because the sideshow tricks, I mean, they, they might be fine, but if you want to be able to shoot flames out of your mouth, hey, if you need fire, you can strike a match, you know? Um, you don't need to take a mantra that will teach you how to walk on water. There are bridges and boats, you know, so you really don't need to develop these kind of esoteric skills. But there are some people who go for them, and, and um, there are some interesting things that, that, that you can see if you... If you um, travel to the right places where, where people um, go for doing these, these kind of things. A book that some of you might be familiar with, um, it has, it's been widely available in paperback, is called Autobiography of a Yogi um, by Paramahansa Yogananda. You don't have to remember his name, because um, Autobiography of a Yogi. And it's, it's very interesting because it um, discusses normal practice, but a number of these various esoteric things. And, and it's, it's an interesting book to give you a, a look inside some of the variety that exists within Hindu yoga. However, if you're going to work with somebody who's in a genuine spiritual tradition there, they will want to give you that mantra that draws out in you that which they see of the divine within you. Um, so all the other is, is kind of sideshow. And there is to be the continuous repetition. If you're doing loving kindness practices, I said, of the phrases, if you're doing a mantra practice, sacred word practice, continuous repetition. Um, I have a quote here from my yogi. Why should there be repetition? The sum total of impressions lives in the mind. They become more and more latent, but remain there. And as soon as they get the right stimulus, they come out. Repetition is the great stimulus. And it goes on to explain that what repetition, continuous repetition does, is deeply engrave in our minds whatever the meditation object symbolizes. And it eventually leads to a continual subliminal awareness of itself. Of, of, the, of the sacred word. Um, some of you might be familiar with a, a lovely little book called The Way of the Pilgrim, um, which is the story of a man in Eastern Orthodox Christianity somewhere in Russia who had read in the Bible that it says pray always, and he wanted to learn how to pray always. So he found himself a teacher who told him, well, just keep repeating over and over again, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. And um, so the man did. He walked about as a pilgrim continually repeating it. And eventually, 
and, and this happens with any mantra practice, and it happened with mine, and I imagine some of you might have done this form of practice before you found mindfulness also. It is pretty continually there. Um, all you have to do is become the least little bit inward tuned, and, and there is your sacred word or whatever else it is that you concentrate on. Teresa of Avila, a Western Christian saint, whom those of you who have heard me talk before, and she's one of my major ones that I like to talk about, um, she used the humanity of Jesus as her meditation object and meditated on Jesus in different stories in the scripture. And she said at one point, you know, although I, I'm not saying I actually saw anything, she wasn't hallucinating or anything, she said it was like Jesus is with me all the time, that constant sense of presence. And that's, if it's a visual object, there can be that sense of continual presence. Um, at the Sri Aurobindo Monastery in India, which is one of my favorite places in the world, it's in Puducherry, India, um, one of the teachers there who recently died, he was very important to me, um, he told me that there's never a minute when Sri Aurobindo and the mother, who was his co-teacher, aren't present to him. Well, his meditation object had been these two major teachers of his, so he had that sense of their continual presence with him. Um, we do have to understand that, although some people misunderstand this and think that someone's actually saying, well, Sri Aurobindo's with me all the time, or Jesus is with me all the time, it's the meditation object that's with you all the time. And although the meditation object stands for Jesus or Sri Aurobindo, it's, it's, it's the meditation object that becomes your constant companion. This is important because some people might want to claim things beyond uh, where they are if that's not understood. Um, I have another um, quote about how concentrative practice transforms our being into what we concentrate on. And this is from another Eastern source. When one meditates, one is like a piece of crystal. Before flowers, the crystal becomes almost identified with the flowers. If the flower is red, the crystal looks red. If the flower is blue, the crystal looks blue. And so that's the kind of transformation. The mind is the crystal which takes on the object that it is concentrated on. The Christian tradition has a very, very interesting, striking example of this. Um, some of you might not have heard the word stigmatism um, before, so I'm going to explain it. A stigmatic is somebody who has the wounds of the Christ in his hands and feet and, and side. And there have been, oh, maybe a dozen or more people across the Christ history of Christianity who have had this experience and had it verified by other people. Um, of course, what they believe is that it's a gift that God gave them, but there is a simpler explanation. And the type of crucifix, they used the crucifix as their meditation object, a visual object, they used the crucifix. But the pattern of the wounds in a person's body matched the pattern of wounds in the crucifix. So those who meditated on a crucifix that had a spike through the hand 
had the wound in their hand. Those who meditated on a crucifix with the spike through here, which is probably where it was because it would just pull right through a hand, um, they had the wound there. So it's clear that it was their meditation object that they had so identified with that they actually, their flesh changed to take on the form of the crucifix on which they meditated. Folks, that's profound concentration when you can concentrate on a visual object to that extent that it actually changes your body and it takes on what the image was. So concentrative meditation um, can do amazing things for us. It's a good form of practice. Again, back to the most common form that you would be familiar with, the loving kindness, it does have profound effects on our minds in transforming them into loving minds um, when we do some of that practice. Um, I have an analogy for how concentrative practice works, and I hope you can follow this because, because I like it a lot. <laughs> they say that when you, con when you concentrate on a chosen meditation object, the mental vibrations on that object occur with increasing rapidity. Um, people who have worked with a, uh, the loving kindness to get to a, a real depth of practice know that the phrase sort of collapses and it's all together there all at once. So it's like coming faster um, for you. Um, so here's an analogy about that more rapid um, more rapid uh, firing of the mind on the meditation object. Picture a clock in a totally dark place, and behind each hour marker of the clock, there's a hole. And somebody is going to be behind there, shining a light briefly at each hour marker, going around the clock from 12 to 1 to 2. Um, before you practice meditation at all, you'd have trouble keeping your attention on following the light around the clock. Um, but once you get reasonably well-developed concentration, you could follow that light that's flashing through the, the hole at each of these hour markers around the clock. And you'll see a clear point of light at each hour marker. Now. Suppose that the person starts moving the light more rapidly around the, those, those holes behind each hour market, marker. If it goes at just the right speed, and this is the faster firing of, on the object, which is the light at each of the holes, it looks like the light is flowing around the circle. Um, you've had experience of this in your daily life, though. It's the same effect you get at railroad crossings where the red lights alternately blink at a speed where it looks like the light is flowing back and forth between the two. You've seen that at railroad. Somebody tell me you've seen it at railroad <laughs> crossings where it looks like the light is flowing back and forth. It's said it. Actually, what's happening is each light is blinking, but they're blinking at such a speed that it looks like they're flowing. Well, when you're practicing concentrative meditation, when it gets to a certain point, it gets that real sense of flow about it. So this is a good analogy. 
Now, if you increase the speed even more, you won't see the light as moving at all, but it'll look like you just see a full circle of light because it's moving fast enough around those, those points that it just looks like a full circle of light. Again, you can get this if you rapidly swing a flashlight real fast or have someone do it and you look at it. It'll look like there's a circle of light instead of the, the light moving around the circle. So you get that full circle of light. Um, and this would define still a deeper stage of concentrative practice when your mind is moving that fast on your meditation object. Now you can go even faster. And when it goes faster, the flashing light is moving so fast around that circle that you can't see it at some points on the circle because it's left before you were able to see it. So you'll experience the circle of light as if it's full of holes or space or if a gauze or filter is covering it. And again, there's a, an, an, a daily life for those of you who fly and who have ever flown in a prop jet airplane. If you have observed the propeller of a prop jet airplane, it, you, you, you don't see the propeller going fully around, but you see a circle with like holes and, and like gauzes over it and everything, because that, that propeller is moving that fast. So you've got that example in daily life defines still another depth in this practice. Finally, what happens if vision were as refined as the mind is? I mean, vision gives up past this point. But if vision were as refined as the mind is, everything would collapse into being just a single point of light. And that's the point at which you're ripe for fruition in concentrative practice. Um, I have something from a Christian mystic, Julian of Norwich, which I love. She said, I saw the whole Godhead concentrated as if it were in a single point. And yogis say when you get to where your, your mantra or your, your sacred phrase or whatever you, collapses to that sacred point, if you can hold attention on it long enough and break through, then that's how you come to realization in concentrative practice. Um, a little bit more now. Um, did, did that analogy make sense for you? I hope it did. The, the idea that, that things are going faster and faster and faster um, as you work on that practice. Um, I have a. This has been for many, many years. This concentrative practice has been really standard in a number of traditions. In Jewish mysticism. The chief thing that they will concentrate on is either a letter or a, a letter from the Hebrew alphabet or a word in Hebrew. And the words that they commonly choose would be one everybody knows, shalom, peace, but also words for um, love and, and wisdom and chokmah and, and all these other words. They would choose a word like that that they would concentrate on. And of course, that is to build that quality in their hearts. And when they concentrate just on a single letter of, of the Hebrew alphabet, each of the letters is said to have particular mystical quality about it, which I'm going to depth in, largely because I don't know what the mystical quality of all those words are. So it's been very common in Jewish practice. 
In Christian practice, it's been the traditional way that people meditated. And um, a man named John Cashin brought it from the East into the, to the Western Christian Church. And undoubtedly, they had gotten it from, in, the Eastern Church had gotten it from India originally. You remember I told you that that pilgrim who wanted to pray always was Eastern Orthodox. So they had been doing it before the Western Christian Church. And John Cashin brought it into the Western Christian Church. And um, there's a book called The Cloud of Unknowing, which is by an anonymous author, which is another Christian classic, which says, take a single word and just keep repeating the single word over and over again. Cashin used a phrase. You can use a word or a, a phrase. And um, so this has been the traditional Christian way um, to meditate. Um, Teresa of Avila, of course, I told you, used, um, used, used um, Jesus. The most common um, repetition of, of the name of a deity are, in Hindu yoga, often a what they call a seed syllable that stands for a particular aspect of deity or divinity. Um, another form works on the principle of, of, of sound vibration. And um, I practice this form some also. My, my teacher, they give it to people who, as they're working with their mantra, you usually start with a mantra, start becoming aware of inner sound a lot. And that's called Nada Yoga. And so I concentrated on, on inner sound for a while. This is very important, this, this notion of sound to Hindus, because um, they believe that the very first manifestation of the Brahman, the ultimate reality, was sound. It's the subtlest and first manifestation. And from that, grosser and grosser forms of manifestation happened. Um, there's a one of the scriptures, the Upanishads, says, in the beginning was Brahman, with whom was the word? And the word was truly the supreme Brahman. The word, of course, is the Om. That's the sacred word that is sums up the Brahman. That's the Om. Um, Interestingly, uh, some of you perked up, you must be aware of Christian scriptures about how in the beginning the word was with God and through the word all things were made. Well, the Hindu scripture was there first. So I'm not saying they copied it. They maybe both got to the same idea. But the idea that um, what is ultimate first there's the sound, and from that, through that, everything else comes. You find that in both the, the Hindu and the, the Christian um, tradition then. Um, so working with sound vibration in meditation is supposed to be like sort of a royal vehicle. So you're, you're working with the subtlest type of manifestation, so it's supposed to be a very um, good vehicle um, back. Um, a little bit more about this sound vibration. As I say, it's the analogous Christian in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, I think of, of what the scientists talk about, the Big Bang, that um, whatever it was that was there 
probably consciousness, most people would say, exploded into the Big Bang, which was where everything that we know around us started, and um, went out to the least levels, like just inert matter, and gradually evolving back into higher and, and higher manifestations of the what is. So both of these scriptures agree with the scientific notion of the Big Bang as being the start of everything. Um, I find all that quite interesting. So anyway, um, that's the basics of concentrative meditation. Um, awareness or mindfulness meditation, with which you're all familiar, but we could talk a little bit about it anyway. Um, this does not appear, of course, to have um, a long history in places outside of the Buddhist tradition. But if you look for it, you can find it. And I have found it in a number of places in the Christian tradition, one of which is the mystic John of the Cross, which is, as you know, is another of my favorite Christian mystics. But there's um, Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection who said, I find God among my pots and pans as readily as I do in the chapel. So, I mean, you know, he was mindful. And he talks about mindfully doing your work. He says... You're being distracted if you're not pulling full attention on what you're doing when you're doing it. I mean, if that's not mindfulness practice, tell me what is. And then Meister Eckhart and another one named de Cassade who referred to the sacrament of the present moment, the idea of being with the present moment because that's where everything is. So although people say this doesn't have a long Christian um, history, it does have some. Now, of course, you know the method here, at least in, in the Mahasi or mental noting style, the style that I believe Mark teaches. He doesn't teach Goenka body scanning, does he? He teaches the Mahasi. We let, it's exactly like the exact opposite of concentrative practice. You let the meditation object choose you. And so you will have various meditation objects as your attention is drawn to different ones. And the idea then is to get in full, full, completely giving yourself to being with the meditation objects that draw your attention um, and to try to observe all these experiences without getting lost in them or being overwhelmed by them. And eventually you start getting in touch with the full range of your mental and bodily experiences. Um, so our meditation practice will have many different objects. And as you know, we practice with a disciplined format, so it's not just sitting and letting your mind wander. When you don't get lost in the stories that your mind wants to write about your experiences, and of course we all know how easy it is to get lost in the stories that our mind wants to write. But when we don't, we can penetrate these objects of experience and see them as they really are without imposing any habitual meanings on them so we can come to view reality with an entirely fresh awareness simply receiving the experiences that come to us in a surrendered choiceless way we stay open to all possible ways of understanding them without locking in on any particular one of course, we all know that early in practice our old mental habits come in and we 
do lock in on meanings, but we gradually get past that. So what awareness practice will do when it draws us to these different objects of attention is it will start dredging up all our unfinished moral, emotional, mental, and even bodily experiences to help heal them and, and unify our beings. And um, it, it brings the residual effects of all, say, our painful emotional experiences which, with which we've not yet dealt to surface awareness to let, give us a second chance to be with these things in a mindful way which can uproot them. So we learn to be with them in this balanced, accepting way that lets healing happen. And the profound effects on physical, emotional, and mental health that such practice produces makes our life management much easier. Um, there are people who use this practice as an alternative to psychotherapy. Um, as some of you know, I've done a number of the three-month retreats at Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, and I've run into a lot of people who have said, doing the three-month retreat instead of psychotherapy, it'll do a better job and it'll be faster. And very often, they're correct. Um, awareness practice also almost forces greater care with our conduct because it draws into our awareness everything that's out of harmony in our lives and brings a rather inescapable and sometimes painful self-knowledge. It produces a dispassion for lesser things and can lead us to the conclusion that happiness lies only in spiritual fulfillment. And as it brings up all the things that our minds have been clinging to so that we can release them, um, it accomplishes a kind of necessary self-emptying if we're going to be getting them clean enough to eventually touch nibbana. So we see beneath surface realities then, and this leads us to an understanding of emptiness, seeing it as the heart of all that is. And I have an analogy for that, for this practice, which is parallel one to the one I had for concentrative practice. And this analogy is going to be looking at a finger under a microscope. Before you do much practice at all, you'd have trouble keeping your attention on the finger. It would be wandering repeatedly. But when you get a little bit of concentration, you can look at the finger. Um, if the microscope is, is very low power, you're going to see a solid-looking thing there when you look at that finger. But increase the power of the microscope enough, and you can start seeing movement occurring within the matter that makes up the finger. And this is when you know, our, our practice reaches the depth of, of starting to see change and movement much more readily. Um, and, of course, you know, seeing that change, seeing anicca impermanence is a very important part of our practice. So if you increase the power of the microscope even longer, you're not going to see the finger as a fixed thing anymore at all. And you're going to realize that all apparently solid things are just actually continual motion, which is what you will see when you look at that finger under the microscope. This, of course, is a major thesis in physics as well as um, in our practice. Make the magnification greater, 
and you'll see the rapid rise and fall of all the various processes occurring within the matter, making up the finger. Innumerable things are happening at mind-boggling speeds, so rapidly that you can't possibly track all of them. And of course, our practice reaches that point where we're seeing with such clarity and so many things that, that it's, it's just continual motion. If you were able, and I don't know if they can get microscopes to do this, but if you were able to increase the power of that microscope even more, you would start seeing the space, the emptiness in between the pulses of the experiences making up the matter of, 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 the, of the finger. And your attention can be on the space or the emptiness between all those pulses of, its, of move, the movement of, of the matter. Um, kind of like looking at the night sky and seeing the various points of light, but all the emptiness um, in between. And, and so we, we come to realize in our practice that the microcosm is like the macrocosm. And hey, it's mostly emptiness. All of our experience is mostly emptiness. When you hear that bell ring, if you're not constantly concentrated at all. It'll just sound like a blast of solid sound. The more concentrated your mind is, you, you start hearing the movement in the bell. You can get concentrated enough to hear the spaces between the pulses of sound. Again, that's the emptiness out of which all the experience comes. Um, so eventually, you become aware of all the pulses of experience and emptiness as just what is and go into the kind of equanimity about this what is that leaves you right for touching nirvana. So this analogy of see increasingly getting it, going from seeing a solid thing to seeing mostly emptiness with just pulses in it is a good analogy for how our awareness practice develops and the, the different the depth to which we can get with the awareness practice. As you know, um, or some of you know, um, I developed what some of my co-teachers call Christian insight meditation to bring this practice to Christians. Although, as I say, I have found that there has been mindfulness practice before, but people just didn't know it. This was the systematization of it for Christians. Sylvia Borstein, and some of you, I imagine, have read some of her work. She's, de she's a delightful read. She's also a delightful person to be near. Um, she has developed retreats which put it in the context of Jewish teachings for Jewish people. So the practice isn't just for Buddhists. It can be brought just like Hindu yoga practices can be brought into various traditions and be helpful within those traditions. So mindfulness practice can be brought into other traditions and be very helpful for people whose major work is in those other, other traditions. Now I said I was going to say a little bit about the work of the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. So what the Maharishi wound up doing was he said, um, it's a lot of work to continuously repeat a mantra and to keep hauling your, yourself back. I'm going to tell people they can pay kind of loose attention to their mantra. 
Um, well, when you pay loose attention to your mantra, one of three things are going to happen. Um, if you're not keeping your mind anchored on it with the continual repetition, one is you'll spin out into thought. Of course, we all know we spin out into thought anyway at times, even when we're, we're practicing a solid method. But you spin out into thought. Well, he says if that happens, then go back and, and repeat it again. Or you fall into a kind of warm, fuzzy, comfortable state, um, which feels wonderful, and they call it resting in the absolute. Um, unfortunately, this state has been known for a long time in the classical traditions. In our Buddhist tradition, we call it sinking mind. And it's an absolutely go-nowhere place in meditation because there's no alert awareness. But it's very comfortable. It's this warm, relaxed, fuzzy. And people don't like to go back to work after they've been there. It feels very good. But um, you're not resting in the absolute. You're in sinking mind, and it's a go-nowhere and then the third thing that might happen is because they're making space in the mind is their stuff might start coming up like it's supposed to come up in our practice, but they don't have any method for working with it. Um, so there have been some casualties from that. I mean, if you open your mind to have your stuff start coming up and you don't have a sound method for working with it, you can get overwhelmed by it. Now, when some Christian... Cistercian monks wanted to develop a practice that most Christians could easily do. They based, they modeled it on TM and they called it centering prayer. Some of you have probably heard of centering prayer. Well, um, I don't go looking for them, but I, I get these moles in these different traditions who come and report things back to me. And um, there was a mole in TM, by the way, who, who blew apart their whole system for me. Because usually you have to put the green down before they give you any information in TM. And, and pretty much green, you know, before they give you the information. But this guy explained to me, you know how they choose mantras? Every boy born in the same month of the same year gets the same mantra. So it's, it's not anything unique about you except that you share a birthday month with other people. Um, and, and they just have these books. This, this guy told me that um, he had thought they didn't know what they were doing, and then when they invited him to be an initiator, he knew they didn't know what they were doing. So he now does mindfulness practice. So anyway, I, I learned all their little secrets like that, you know, and about people being blown out of the water sometimes by, well, they're having the same problems with centering prayer, and I have a mole who gives me information about that also. Um, you know, and, and they're backing off now. They're telling people, oh, don't stay with that other stuff more than a minute before you go back to your sacred word. Well, they go back far enough, they'll be back to classical concentrated practice. But now they're telling people, don't stay with your stuff more than a minute because on their retreats they'd have people who were just freaking out all over the place because <laughs> they didn't have a method for working with that stuff. So there are some problems with TM and centering prayer that can be avoided by practicing one of the time. I mean, this thing's a century old, less than a century old, about 60, 65 years old, that method. Um, classical concentrative practice is a good method when you want to build a particular something in your mind and you want to steep your mind in it. When you want the... The, the, the healing and the 
um, deepened awareness of reality and of your own being, that mindfulness practice brings you want to do mindfulness practice. I'm sure that, like me, many of you practice both. I do loving kindness. I do, of course, Vipassana is my main practice. But I also sometimes sit with my old uh, mantra that my yoga teacher gave me. I, I like my mantra. Um, and I sometimes sit with it. And as long as you don't try to do them all in the same sitting, that works fine. But when you're doing Vipassana, you do Vipassana. And when you're doing concentrative practice, you do concentrative practice. Of course, there are many other forms of Vipassana. Um, the, the Mahasi style, which uh, is the, the most widespread. Um, there are others where you direct your attention some, like the body scanning method. Um, and uh, and um, But the ba all Buddhists, the basic heart of their meditation is mindful awareness, however they wind up getting to the mindful awareness. So what does, what does TM and Senna and Claire give you? The one consistent finding in research done by people other than the TM people who find all sorts of things um, is it, it is relaxing. And it is very relaxing. And to go into that sinking mind state is very relaxing. But you can get relaxation from relaxation exercises or from doing one of the traditional forms of practice also, or exercise. So anyway. To sum up, it's about time I did that, the, the classical time-honored traditions are concentrative and awareness practice. Um, they involve maintaining continuous attention on a meditation object, a chosen one in concentrative practice, and one that chooses us in our Mahasi-style Vipassana. And, um, they promise to lead you all the way if you do them faithfully. And I think I'll stop with that, and I'll take any questions that people might want to ask me. Yes? Vipassana is the same as mindfulness Yes, Vipassana is the Pali word, and it's often translated either mindfulness meditation, insight meditation, awareness meditation. It's translated in different ways. Um, just, just a minute. I've got a lot of competition, and even though I have the hearing aid in, when there's background noise, it masks so okay. volume. All right. Shabbata? Shabbata? Shamata? Shamata versus Vipassana? Shamata, shamata is another word for concentration or concentrative practice. And um, actually, traditionally, in the Buddhist tradition, people did a fair amount of that before they were given mindfulness practice because they would get their mind to develop a certain amount, a, a certain depth of concentration, which would then leave them really prepared for their Vipassana practice to go fast. Um, and there are umpteen different objects they would use for that, colored discs and loving kindness and meditation on a body decaying and the foulness of food. And I mean, just umpteen million objects they would use, and, and the object would be chosen as an appropriate one for, for each person. 
It wasn't until the early 20th century with Mahasi Sayadaw who thought that, hey, and, and it, was, it was mostly a monastic practice because of that, because lay people didn't have the time to spend that they wanted them to on a lot of shamatha practice. Um, but Mahasi Sayadaw said, hey, I bet people can develop mindfulness and concentration at the same time. And so it started being taught to lay people. It didn't take very long, of course, before it came to the West also then, once it started being taught to lay people. Um, the returns that we make to the primary object, to the breath, are always strengthening the concentration while the mindfulness is being developed by being aware of the different places that our attention lands and working with those objects. So. Um, in our practice, we're developing both at the same time. You raise one issue about um, when you're doing the, I can't remember what it's called, like the prayer concentration, that issues come up and then people are freaking out. Which is like, what do we have here that helps us deal with it better than, say, that practice? And how does Vipassana prepare us for stuff that comes up as opposed to the more lax? Well, I don't know. Um, whether you've actually had formal instruction in Vipassana practice or not, you should get yourself, you should, you should take a class and get some formal instruction because there's a method of, of how, like, you don't feed emotions with thought, you don't, uh, there's, a, there's a whole, there's a method that contains it and allows you to be with even quite intense experiences without getting messed up by them. So you should. You should, um, I'm sure Mark has classes here. I, I teach classes. I, I teach in St. Paul once a year in the spring, but that class is half done. I'll be in St. Paul again next spring. I teach at the Jewish Community Center, which is just across the river off West 7th on St. Paul Avenue every spring. Uh, but I'm sure Mark has classes here. Get yourself some formal training in it, and, and then you'll have the method that you'll have a methodology for containing those experiences in such a way that you work with them without getting blown out of the water by them. Two questions. Question number one. What was the name of the sound yoga? Was it Nada Yoga? N-A-D-A. Nada. Question two. What are the Quakers doing? What? What, what are Quakers doing? Um, Quakers, it's, it's not really quite meditation. They just sit in silence. And actually, when I first moved to, to Mankato, I sat with Quakers because there wasn't any Vipassana there until I started teaching it at the university. I sat with Quakers because they were people who, for the most part, sat quietly and, and you could sit with other people. They just sit quietly and see what comes. And um, then they usually speak it out loud to the people that they're speaking with, you know, whatever comes. Um, so it's not, it's sort of related to meditation, but it's not actually meditation. And whatever comes up is supposed to be for the community as a whole. Usually they aren't getting into their own personal stuff that way, and maybe the mind knows this is for the community as a whole, and it's not going to let stuff that you wouldn't want to tell the community as a whole come up, you know. Um, it's, but it's often um, pious thoughts or... Um, um, instructions for life management or things like that, that that tend to come up for them. Thank you. They're lovely people. They're very, very um, gentle people usually. I like Quakers. Anything else?
Well, I hope you're a little bit clear on the aim and the purpose of different forms of practice now, and, and I, I hope that the analogies were helpful for understanding how each one is supposed to, to deepen and where it's to get you. And I like coming to Common Ground, and I trust I'll see you again at some point in the future because Mark has me in fairly regularly. Well, we certainly have appreciated having you here, too, as always. And uh, thank you again, Mary Jo. Okay. Very good talk. Very good. By the way, if any of you who are not on my mailing list would like to get on it, especially if you have any friends in the north suburbs, which is where I teach most of my classes, um, I, I send around notices when I'm going to be doing classes and send a newsletter every year. It's just R-E-S-E-C-U-M, Resicum, R-E-S-E-C-U-M, at msn.com. And if you email me, I will add you to the notification list of, of what's going on. No obligation, of course, it's, but you would, and you don't hear from me awful lot. Two, three, probably three times a year, twice a year with class announcements, and once a year with the annual newsletter that I put out. So you wouldn't get flooded with email if you if you want it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.